Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. I have one of my favorite humans on today to tell you about an amazing product that we both love. Well, thank you, honey. This is Milkman Mark Hyman here telling you about the almond cow, which I saw on those Instagram posts, and I thought, we've got to have one of these and see whether it is actually as good as it looks. And it is. It's actually even better because there are things that you can make out of it, almond milk, oat milk. Cashew milk. Uh, coconut milk. Anything you want, you can make in this. And what's great is you have, there are fewer preservatives, less sugar, and then what you get left over at the end is this pulp that you can make into, can make cookies or muffins, so nothing goes to waste. And it's there any time, so if you run out of milk, you don't have to run to the store. It is so amazing. We love it, love it, love it. So if you want to get your own, check out the link and use code Lara for extra savings. Approved by The Milkman. Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a lit yoga podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through smarter and safer movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Welcome to Friday with Friends. Today I have a dear friend who has been in my life for a few years and I adore her, Svenja Borges. And I know I'm, she's German, I'm really messing up that name, but I just know her as Svenja, the brilliant neuroscientist. Svenja went through our lit trainings and is just such a gem of knowledge. When she was going through the trainings, I would look at her and see her smiling because we were talking the same language, but she has a background in not only psychology, but in neuroscience. We talk about her background and how neuroscience really comes alive in a way that we can understand when we're practicing yoga and movement. We talk about pain, what to do with it, how the brain is sending out signals for movement, how movement helps you grow your brain, and so many other wonderful tips. Please enjoy my talk with my dear friend. Welcome, my dear friend, Svenja. So happy to have you on here. I've wanted to have you on this podcast forever. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I, I know you're so humble, and so I'll, I'll sing all your praises, but I would love to get inside your brain, literally, and, and find out how you became so interested in neuroscience and the brain. Yeah, basically, I've been always asking lots of questions, wanted to know why we are the way we are, like even when I was little, 
Um, so, yeah, I mean, when we think about this, the first place to start with it is our brain, because um, what makes us the way we are, how we think and everything is defined by our or works by our brain. So, um, yeah, I've been reading like when when I was in school, I've been reading magazines about um, uh, it was called it's a German magazine. So it was called uh, Gehirn und Geist, which means um, brain and the mind. And I've been just um, really interested in understanding how it works. And so um, I started to study cognitive science um, as my first, like my bachelor studies. And it was all about looking at the brain from different perspectives, like neuroscience, cognitive psychology, philosophy, even like artificial intelligence. And I think that's really um, so uh, nice to look at it from different perspectives and um, yeah, so I decided to go on with this and studied um, neural and behavioral sciences and did my PhD in um, neuropsychology and got deeper into how movement works, um, perception and proprioception, actually. Mm, I love that. Well, on that note, um, how would you describe the difference when we talk about this kind of in general layman terms between the brain and the mind? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, the brain is really like the anatomical um, structure. Um, the mind actually is, I feel it's what we are conscious about. Maybe that's um, a possible way to differentiate it. But then on the other hand, the mind is um, everything that um, is made. Like what, 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 what our brain is... Um, you know, the, the functioning of the brain actually could be described as the mind also. And what um, would you say from like early childhood on the input that we're getting is changing, developing, structuring it in a certain way, but that can always be restructured at any time? Yes, definitely. So our brain keeps changing all the time. So we say our brain is plastic. And so neuroplasticity is the ability of the brain to change. And actually, it's the normal state of the brain. So the brain always keeps adapting to what we give it. Um, so it's always, um, yeah, it's always changing from, from childhood on, but also it never stops changing. That's so important to understand. And are there certain things, and I'm sure there's many, that can either accelerate these changes or conversely, make you, even though the brain inherently is plastic, but make you less, like kind of less plastic, kind of more rigid? Are, what are the things that um, impact that plasticity? Um, yeah, so for the brain to work uh, well, it really needs a fuel, which is like uh, oxygen, um, and um, which we get from breathing, but also when we exercise or when we um, like when we also when we laugh, actually, there is a lot of more oxygen uh, getting to the brain. So that's also beneficial. Um, in fact, so the more we learn and keep learning, the more the brain is stimulated to learn, actually, because. Um, yeah, so we could also say by definition um, the brain is a bit lazy, so what it knows well, in or it likes to use the pathways that it knows. And so it definitely needs stimulation 
to learn. But when we change the demands um, for our brain, then it will try to adapt to, to like um, try to um, just get better at what we try. Sorry, my uh, English yeah. isn't the best. Oh no, I know. And she's speaking in her second language, people. This is amazing. You're still more eloquent than most. Um, so on that note, I think it's really, this is a great seg segue into what we're both passionate about, which is posture and movement and all the things that come along with that. Um, can you explain in, in, from your neuroscience background, like why it is important to pay attention to your posture, how your posture affects your brain, how your posture affects the brain's ability to control different movement or send out different signals. Can you talk a little bit about that as it based before we launch into movement? Sure, yeah. I mean, posture is also a wide field, I feel. So of course, uh, we get all the, like with the better posture, we get all the benefits on our joints and on the balance um, of how our muscles work. But I think um, um, what, what also, when we think about the brain and how it posture affects uh, the brain, um, there are lots of uh, different elements too. So for example, uh, we all probably know that when we sit or stand upright, we can breathe better. Um, so we can breathe more freely and the breathing itself also signals to the brain. So of course I said the brain needs oxygen, but also the way we breathe means something to the brain. So if we breathe very in a very shallow way or fast, then this is what is usually associated with stress or fear or something like that. So if we breathe in very um, like full breath and in a relaxed way, then that's a relaxing signal to the brain. Um, that's one uh, point. And then also... Um, um, it, there are lots of studies showing that um, the way we hold ourselves and our posture has an effect on our mood and on our thoughts. So, um, you know, the study from Amy Cuddy, which is very popular, uh, yes. where she um, where she uh, investigated what effect the posture has. So she had people um, taking up lots of space um, in their upper body, um, maybe um, like doing the V arms <laughs> and um, just um, as if you imagine running over um, or running like the finish what, what line. Is it called? Yeah. The yeah. finish line, exactly. Yeah. So, um, and then compare this to people who have rather like a forward bent posture. And um, she found that um, those people with an open and upright posture. Um, had actually a hormonal change. So they produced more testosterone and less cortisol. So testosterone, the uh, hormone that's associated with power and like decision-making and just... Um, confidence, yeah, and uh, all the confidence stuff. Confidence yeah. and um, um, cortisol, sorry, uh, with uh, this is the, the common stress hormone. Um, and actually the hormonal effect couldn't be replicated by uh, further studies but what she also showed was um, that those people have felt more confident that, that have been in the power poses and they were also um, um, more um, they tended to 
do like take more risky decisions afterwards than those that were in the uh, low power poses poses. Yeah, it's kind of like a contracted sitting at your computer state is really signaling to your brain, whether you're consciously aware of it or not, that Mm -hmm. you're stressed, that you, um, and and we know that, the impact it has on the organs, like you were saying, on your breathing, Mm -hmm. I'm I'm sure all of that lends itself, but to these actual hormones that, you know, changed by these saliva tests within a few minutes. So Mm -hmm. I think for Mm -hmm. anybody that's sitting at your desk while you're reading this or thinking about like how your sitting posture or your standing posture affects you really try and again take up space and and just sense for yourself not only how someone visually mm-hmm. sees you but how it, it feels inside because again that's a, your brain is in a way not able to know any different but just the signaling from the way that you're holding yourself it's getting um it changes so how does exactly. that train yeah go ahead yeah I'm sorry. And there are other studies actually showing that when we are in a forward bend posture, we have a much harder time to regulate our mood. So when we're in a negative mood, it's so much harder to really um, get back to a more positive or neutral mood. And then also when um, there was a study that um, gave like where people did a test and then they were told that how like that they passed the test or that they performed pretty well. And those that were in this forward bend posture in uh, contrast to the the ones really upright and taking up space group, um, they had um, less, they, they were less able to feel the pride and just be happy about the result. Mm. So there's lots of evidence um, just showing how much posture is related to our mood. And also what's really important, I think, is how other people see us. So. Um, the posture is not only working internally and giving ours like our own brain um, the signals, but in the same way, it's been mirrored um, for other people and how they see us. So it's just really important, um, like what a huge effect it has. Oh, and, yeah. I and mean, so we bear, we touched a little bit on you were saying like for the joints um, and for the mood, but mm-hmm. let's talk about for motor firing how a inhabiting a certain posture that is like, let's just categorize it as suboptimal. Again, there's no perfect Mm -hmm. posture, but Mm -hmm. there's a spectrum um, that will be recognized as more optimal. And when you're in a less optimal posture, how is that impacting the signals the brain gives to certain muscles to fire in, to move you Mm -hmm. or to support you? So, um, yeah, you mean like when we when we want to get up or like how we how we are motivated to move. So probably like when we are in this forward bend posture that we um, don't feel a lot like moving, but really feel this kind of um, lazy mood. <laughs> then, yeah, like um, do you mean that? Well, that, but also like you were talking about how we. Um, even though the brain is plastic, it does have a little mm-hmm. bias sometimes to whether it's efficiency or just habit to go in a certain pathway. And so if, for instance, your example, like you're sitting mm-hmm. in a hunched position mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and you're not conscious about how to press into the ground and lift up using your hips and holding your spine longer, your go-to might be different, right? You might just be kind of like being less efficient and then you continue. Mm-hmm. That's the path you knew. That's the motor, um, the brain mapping, you know, and so, Mm -hmm. um, 
can you talk a little bit about how like that that why when you change your structural starting point like via your mm-hmm. posture mm-hmm. you are starting to set up a different pathway perhaps with awareness mm-hmm. of where of what's going to help you move you know so it's not going to just be like always overusing your you know calf muscles or your erector spinae mm-hmm. um, when you when your more kind of postural muscles need to come come on more mm-hmm Okay, yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm just trying to understand what direction you want to go because I have so many things oh, coming yeah. up now, but I don't know really. Yeah, what you to just focus go. On, but I'm just. You can riff I'm just with starting. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So um, our movements are basically, or let's maybe start with how we feel our body and like. Um, so, and then how we um, innervate our muscles. Maybe that's a good point to start. So, um, actually we um, have, um, so our our motor, or let's say our um, muscles have a, no, sorry, let's start in another way. So how we feel our body uh, and how we move our body um, is basically represented in our brain. So we have a motor cortex, um, and the body parts that we move are represented um, on our motor cortex and not in the way how big, like as an example, how big um, the finger and the hand is, but actually in the way how we um, are able to uh, control it. So our fingers and our hands, we usually are able to control in a very fine-tuned way. And so, um, the representations um, of these body parts in our motor cortex are pretty large. While, for example, our feet, usually we're not trained to control very well. So the representations are pretty small. And when we map this, um, um, like the whole body in this way, how large the representations are in the motor cortex, um, we get um, something like a homunculus. It's called, um, like, it's a human that's been represented in the sizes, how the representations are. And so we have a motor cortex and the sensory motor, uh, sorry, somatosensory cortex. And the motor cortex is for controlling the movements and the sensory motor cortex is for feeling the body. And um, those, those parts are really tightly coupled. Um, so we usually, like we wouldn't have a um, a large sensory re- representation of the foot and have a very small representation. Um, yeah, we wouldn't have a large representation of the foot in the sensory motor, some other sensory cortex, sorry. So when we feel it um, and not have a large representation of the foot in the motor cortex. So it's related. We can't, um, when we feel something very well, we probably can also move it well. So, um, now trying to come back to your question, um, this, like how we feel has an effect on how we move. And um, so the motor cortex signals, um, their, um, the, the upper motor neurons, they signal a signal down to the um, spinal cord where we have the lower motor neurons and they communicate to the muscles. Um, and um, basically the, the tension of the frontal body and the um, 
like back body, for example, they are um, controlled not only via direct signals from the motor cortex, but also via reflexes through the spinal cord, for example, and also by control of the brainstem um, that really um, makes us um, like keep our stance and um, the tension in our body to control um, that we are not shifting to one side, for example. Yeah. Yeah, and when you're talking so ten, when, when you're talking tension there, you're talking about kind of like muscle tone, not like stress tension. Yes, it's like of course, you need yeah. some tension so of you're course. not floppy, right? Right. Yes. Yeah. Thanks for clarifying. Yeah. So, for instance, if somebody was kind of like we see in yoga, um, like less integrated, so they're they're maybe maybe they're kind of jutted out in the rib cage, which is pretty common, or anteriorly tilted in the pelvis, and mm -hmm. so those back muscles might be kind of on a shortened position. It doesn't mean they're strong, mm -hmm. but they're just kind of short, that tension there. And then the front might be a little bit like underwhelmed, not getting mm -hmm. enough um, information. So what is the kind of problem with that when you go into bigger movement patterns and you haven't um, brought that balance of motor sensory, um, somatosensory kind of activation into say, for instance, like the postural mm -hmm. muscles that give you so much support? Yeah, so um, the control of how we move is actually not only the motor cortex. So I really kind of put this in a very simple way um, as I explain it right now, but um, there are lots of um, parts working together. So um, let's just say the motor cortex initiates the movement, but then when we plan it, there's the premotor cortex we have a specific motivation and a goal and, and decide to move, which is the frontal cortex. And then how we move in space is the parietal cortex. And you know, then when we um, fine tune our movements, when we maybe inhibit something, then that's the basal ganglia, just to throw in a few things to, to give an expression how complicated movement actually is, but not only complicated, but how much of the brain it involves. So it's so important for our brain and affects basically everything. Um, so there's a cerebellum, which is really important for balance, for coordination, but also for learning. And so when we move, we um, kind of predict what will be the outcome. So when we send the signal from the motor cortex down to the spinal cord, um, it will actually, uh, the motor cortex will also send a signal to the cerebellum it's called like an efference copy. So it will send a copy of what movement is planned. And then the cerebellum will, um, will calculate what the result will be probably. And so before we even do the movement, the cerebellum might know, is this what we actually want? So is the movement as precise and is it in the, in the right, um, you know, fine tuned, um, force and so on. And then um, it will be able to actually um, tell the, like the motor cortex to correct this movement before we even do it. So or before we even finish to do it. So this is how these fine tuned corrections of movement are possible. And so, um, yeah, it's, there's a lot of go going on. And um, and I think it's important to understand that learning actually works through predictions and that we need to pay attention 
um, to to recognize if we can adapt anything. So learning always um, requires um, observation and like conscious observation. That's why yoga is so um, great to learn and to to um, develop a better body image and body representation. Mm. So in yoga, for example, if someone were kind of stepping their leg forward and they feel like, ah, I've run out of space or Mm -hmm. what's happened? Can you explain what's happening there? Because everybody will just think of it as being like, oh, my hamstrings are tight. That doesn't allow me to go through, which is the interpretation that we are sensing that it's our hamstrings that are limiting us. But Mm -hmm. what is the brain doing at that moment? Um, And obviously it has been signaling that for a while that somebody all of a sudden just doesn't get a free hamstring opening. Um, so what is it that's happening and what can, what can people do about that? So, um, is that, I know it's like, she's like, honey, the brain is very complicated. I cannot take, I can't process, but, but as I know, it's, it's hard to, uh, decipher that, but maybe in layman's terms, what is kind of happening that, that is getting, is it a reflex that has been, is that over, like kind of overly active that's preventing the movement for a free hamstring um, kind of extension of the knee or is there something else going mm-hmm. on or is there a lot going on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's, re- it's the, the thing why it's so difficult to, to answer is because there can be so many factors and the brain is like how we, we all, have an individual brain there's it's if you look at the brain it's hard to find an answer that works for everyone mm. so a possible thing could just be um like you say when you when you're stretching right when when you or when you move a leg forward i didn't like like what, when what you're a down dog you? and you know somebody steps their their leg forward and yeah. they just can't whether it's mm-hmm. their back okay. fascial line is tight you mm-hmm. know what i mean and they're just like i can't yeah. step it for, yeah Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Of course. I mean, there can always be like physical restrictions, as you say, the fascia that's just tight. Mm-hmm. Um, it could also be like that the, the motor pattern is not um, not something that we're used to, and so we need to learn how to engage what muscles after each other, and then just to to re like um, repeat it again and again. And then try to adapt things. And that's the important things we need to, like, if you repeat things all over again um, and don't change, like, anything, um, probably it's better than not repeating. (laughs) But um, we definitely need to pay attention, adapt, and then try again. So, um, yeah. And then also when we learn, it's always good to use more than one sense. So, for example, we feel our own body which is like a proprioception from within um, the the state of our muscles Uh, we can also use our hands to get um, external feedback from our body like tactile cues we can look so sometimes it's good to just record yourself on video and and watch it so you can see how it really looks and like sometimes how it feels can be very different from how it looks and all these things so it's good to just um um, strengthen the signal from mm-hmm. different senses. Well, I like what you're um, saying, which I, yeah, yeah like I, I think like, so somebody that is like in down dog and they always tip their foot forward and the way they've gotten around like that 
tight fascia or whatever it is, mm -hmm. decreased hip mobility is kind of swinging it out or lifting their hands. Essentially, what you're saying is you have to retrain a different pathway, which is a different way of doing it, which is new for you, which might mean mm -hmm. press into the floor and maybe mm -hmm. just get the leg up, you know, halfway instead of going into the habitual way, which is going to just give you the same result. Exactly. And it's actually the, the brain uses the pathway pathways that it knows. And, you know, the communication of the brain works in networks. So um, how the, the neurons are wired um, and when we want to change some, something, we need to really consider that it takes a while. It won't change from like with a snap. Yes. And so, it's like when people want to do handstand in five days. Yeah. It's like, well, if you haven't ever done it, there's a, there's a lot of steps mm -hmm. along the way. Many parts of the brain involved, including your own sense of your amygdala and all that, like sense of fear. And um, but just it's different. So I think it's so important to reiterate, like mm -hmm. if, for for things to change, it's worthwhile. But you have to bring awareness. So in that vein, mm -hmm. I know we talk a lot about in Lit Yoga, this visualization can mm -hmm. you talk about why um, bringing some visualization, for instance, I'll say if you're here is how the mechanics of getting into a handstand, but even if you only lift up a little bit or barely let the ground start to visualize your body mm -hmm. going there, why is that an important um, element of the brain to, to, mm -hmm. to visualize something? Mm -hmm. So there are uh, different factors. One, and I think that's the simplest uh, one is that um, we often are like don't believe we can do it and then when we visualize it we tell ourselves that you know we can do it actually and then believing in ourselves will help us and motivates us that's one aspect and I think another very interesting fact is um, when we look uh, how um, like when we do a certain action as I said, the motor cortex will be active, but also when we observe someone do something, there's another kind of um, network, which is called the mirror neuron network. So when we observe something, someone do uh, an action, there's the same network active than when we do the movement. I don't know. Hopefully it was... Um, yes, no, was, I know. Uh, I've read understand. that okay. where it's like if you are to going to do, say, an action, mm -hmm. say we're like doing mm -hmm. a bridge, even yeah. starting to visualize the bridge is is stimulating this that same action as if you were doing it. Obviously, it isn't sending the mm -hmm. signals, but through that mirror network, mm -hmm. it's starting that, which is, I'm sure, an important process for kind of encoding the, like the, the track, the, the beginning mm -hmm. of being able to do it. And so in a way, mm -hmm. would you say it just strengthens the... Um, process of of motor mapping whatever it is you're working on exactly so it was found that when we visualize doing a certain movement the primary motor cortex is active um in the same way as when we want to do it like as we as we really plan to do it um the thing that works that makes us not do it so um the upper motor neurons that are in the motor cortex they are active um but the lower motor neurons and the spinal cord, they are not active. So if they were active too, we would really do the action. Um, so there are some inhibiting process that makes the upper motor neurons not fire down to the spinal cord. But um, we have, so there was a study actually um, that 
focused on mental training. Um, and they made people move or a strength, they made them do a strength training with their fingers. And actually they made them do the um, training five times for 15 minutes uh, a day and for 12 weeks. So it's a lot of time, but they compared a, um, um, a group of persons that did only the mental training to a group of persons that did the actual training. And they found that um, 13 to, well, that, that those people that did the mental training, they improved their strength even for between 13 and 35% versus um, the people that did the actual training, they improved, for, um, they improved 53% of strength. So basically I find this re really um, surprising that actually you can even like get half, half the training effect with mental training than with actual training. But of course, you cannot like you can't say okay I'm only doing the mental training. Right, I was going to say don't you set an course, excuse not to. No, <laughs> no it's, it's not an excuse, but it will just because you you won't train your muscles, right? And you need right. to you need to do that <laughs> um, if you want to really do the training. But I find it's really um, encouraging to really also do the visualizing um, aspect of the training because it can help so much and. If there's a moment where we just can't move, it might make sense to just close the eyes and visualize. It's better than doing nothing. <laughs> Absolutely. I think it's so fascinating. I remember um, reading in, in some, some neuroscience magazine, and it was about a basketball player who improved his three-point shot. I was showing this to my son, and it 50% of what he did was absolutely just like spending 15 minutes a day mm -hmm. and visualizing mm -hmm. it, visualizing it, visualizing mm -hmm. it. And um, I just thought, that's amazing. Like, yeah, you have, because you think of it like, yes, there's motor coordination and all that, but there's, he just essentially amplified it, like rocket shifted mm -hmm. um, his ability to improve dramatically. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, we could talk for a long time, but I want to head into pain because I know this is another... Um, such a hot topic, you know, people will not move because they're in pain or they start moving and maybe pain happens and then they are confused. So let's just unpack as best as possible. What are, what, what, what's an important, um, maybe what's a misconception of pain and what is an important thing to know about pain that might help people realize that, mm -hmm. um, that they don't have to be stopped or in you know, preventing movement. Yeah. Yeah. I think the biggest misconception is that brain, uh, pain, yeah. <laughs> not brain, that pain arises in the tissue. So actually the tissue, when it's hurt, it will send a signal to the brain, which um, like the pain, the, the receptors that um, signal a threat to the brain. That's how we would um, say it. Um, they are called nociceptors, but they don't signal um, the pain itself. The pain is um, is an output signal from the brain, actually. So we can say the brain gets input signals from like internal interoception from our um, body tissue, from the muscles, um, from the organs. Um, and it gets signals from the outside world, like what we see, how, um, um, what we hear, and also vestibular uh, information. So 
information about balance from the inner ear. And all of this is integrated and the brain actually then interprets it. And depending on how relevant the brain thinks this signal or the all the signals together are with respect to our own safety, because uh, the brain is all about keeping us safe. Um, and depending on how relevant the brain thinks it is for us, um, the more probable it will be that it will give us a, a higher pain. So actually when we think something um, is very, um, like um, it's a high risk for our own integrity, um, then we feel it's very, like as a, we feel it as much more painful than we think it's a very harmless thing. So a very um, easy example that I think everyone knows is when children uh, fall and the, like when they were really young, the first thing they do is they look up to the parents because they themselves don't know is it is it bad or not and they try to get the confirmation and when um, the mother is just ignoring it or just says yeah fine just um, keep running let me help you up um, yeah as opposed yeah. to oh my gosh yeah <laughs> yeah exactly and then that's what determines the reaction of the of the child and so actually this is what our brain does within ourselves without us noticing it always thinks like okay is this bad or not um and um Depending on that, um, the brain will decide. And with respect to what can we do or is it good to move or not? Um, of course, it depends on where it's coming from. Um, and um, Well, let me know. give you an example. Say people are sitting mm -hmm. around, as many are, yeah. at their desk. And they start to feel like this beginning of a, like, a little like ache. Mm -hmm. um, and I think... You know, again, if you have a lot going on, probably the brain filters some of that out and then it gets a little bit louder. Mm -hmm. But that ache, can you explain, like, what is what is the brain trying to tell you when you get a little ache in your low back or mm -hmm. ache in your sit bones or ache in your neck mm -hmm. when you've been sitting for a while? What is that? That's interpret. I mean, that's an opinion. But what is it maybe trying to tell us or is it just mm -hmm. like giving us information? Maybe we need just to move. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So actually pain, just like uh, another signal like fatigue or nausea or like muscle tension is a signal that the brain wants us to stop what we're doing. So when we keep sitting, that's, yeah. So we it's, should, it's we should listen to that smart brain. Yeah. <laughs> so um, it could be, of course, I mean, we never know where it's coming from. It's, it's also, there's an individual factor, right. but um, in general um, it's, good to just uh, change what we're doing and then also to work on um, trying to make the brain feel more like safer um, it, with respect to interpreting the signals that it gets and so for example we never know what adds up to the point where the brain gives us the pain but if we work on our movement control and how we feel our body and pay attention to how we feel and listen and then change to or try to uh, get a, um, a better coordination of our body, then it will make our brain feel safer. And that's actually probably uh, one of the factors why often movement helps. Um, right. I mean, of course, there are physical effects, um, you know, where we feel more balanced in our body and, and the muscles, um, but also from the brain perspective, that's a huge thing.
I, I think that's so important because I almost feel like it's like we're we're paying attention to our our friend upstairs, you know, as opposed to ignoring. And there is like a when when someone pays attention, you just feel more calm. You feel like you're heard. You feel like you're in it mm -hmm. together. And um, I do think, you know, when I know as a physical therapist, when people say, oh, my gosh, this weekend I did this and I left, you know, reached mm -hmm. over and my back blew out and, and the, I don't know what happened. It's just like and I think to myself, you know, I don't know what happened, but my gut is that there was a lot of buildup until that moment. And there was probably a lot of signals in some way, mm -hmm. unless there was like a major structural thing. But it was just that one move was not the thing. It's not like all of a sudden mm -hmm. the back mm -hmm. doesn't snap. But I think in some ways the brain might have snapped. Like, stop, you know, I've been sending, sending you signals to do something different and you haven't. And so now mm -hmm. I'm going to send you a really big one. And because, and then that scares, you know, when you get that kind of like sharp pain, um, again, if it's not structural, but structural similar, it, it, it just, it's, it's important to like calm yourself down and realize like mm -hmm. I'm going to, and that's like usually the first thing what I tell people is like, you're going to be okay. Like you're, yeah. our bodies are really strong, really resilient, but there's something you need to change. And that's what your brain mm -hmm. essentially has been asking. So let's examine what it is. And often it is these people are like maybe sitting a lot or just doing one movement a lot repetitively and not getting into this these bigger um, movement patterns that are so mm -hmm. good for our joints, so good for our breath, but really also so good for our brain. Exactly. And um, that's actually um, a, um, a great thing. Like we can all do just when we feel painful and anything painful or just stress, we can always come back to our breath and then um, practice like slow and calm breathing and actually that also gives our brain a signal that we are in a safe um, state and um, that it can come down on and yeah usually that already gives us a better feeling like for example when we get the sharp pain um, just the first thing is to just calm down and not panic <laughs> yeah and actually yeah. there was a really interesting um, study I find that was done with um yoga practitioners and then a control group and they found that um, the yogis had um, did have a higher pain tolerance so the the threshold with how they like how they detected at what point they detected the pain was the same but um, the yoga group um, was like accepted the pain much longer than the non-yogis and then later they asked them what it was and um, the yoga practitioner said they really paid attention to the pain and then just focused on it and um, like calmed down their, their breath. And um, the non-yogic group, they try to ignore the pain. And that's usually, I mean, what we probably intuitively would do, just um, trying to ignore it and think about something else. but. I find it really interesting that um, it was found that the other group um, was much like accepted the pain much longer. And um, also this study investigated the structural um, differences and they found that the yoga practitioners had a more gray uh, volume, a uh, um, higher, or how, how do you say in English, um, the a higher Gray concentration volume, of gray, gray matter. matter volume sorry mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yes actually so gray matter is um, um the 
the part of the brain that make that is made up of the cells um so um, neurons and the uh, glial cells so supporting cells and so they had um, a higher gray matter volume in the insular cortex which is a part of the cortex that um, integrates all the signals from within the body so the interoceptive signals but also from the motor and sensory motor, uh, some other sensory cortex and emotions. And um, um, so everything. And then this, the insular cortex is um, known to be involved in evaluating the pain, like how relevant pain is to us. And so it totally makes sense uh, what they found. I find it really interesting how important um, interoceptive awareness is. And that's, yeah. So how beneficial it is to practice paying attention to the inward signals. Yeah, and I think like you said at the very beginning, yoga um, automatically in some ways, I mean, what it's doing is summing you to pay attention. It is about going, like you're not going, There's it's great to go for a run and all that, but a lot of times you might get like distracted. You know, you're like, you're trying mm -hmm. to distract yourself a little bit versus yoga is really asking you to pay attention more moment to moment. And it makes sense that that gray matter um, increased in density. And I think that's an important, I mean, that that helps our regulation of our own emotions. Mm -hmm. It helps memory. Um, yeah. These, yeah, all the good stuff that we want. So mm -hmm. we need to move people and we need to move with uh, paying attention and visualization and, and all of that wonderful things that you were mentioning today. What are some... Um, leaving us off with a few maybe brain hacks uh, or things to think about when you're practicing movement, whether it's yoga or something else. What is What are any tips that you would um, suggest that you might practice yourself? Um, yeah, good question. So um, first of all, I think it's very important to um, practice regularly and um, really pay attention to your body and to the signals. I think that's the most important thing to um, always come back to it and pause and feel your body because um, yeah, it's, it's your body. It's um, very special. It enables you to do so many things and um, yeah, it's like being or yeah, always being aware that, um, we are never like we always have a choice and our body gives us the, the possibility to to act and to change and um, also to always be able to yeah that we are always able to adapt and so I think um, like I love to practice really um, the fine-tuning of the movements because it will make us feel like we have better control of our body um, and we feel uh, more in control of ourselves um, and then um, keep learning. I think that's so important um, always to change movement patterns, to um, like work on coordination and transitions and just also have fun because that's so important um, for just, there's no learning without you enjoying it. Oh, I love that. Amen. I just love that. Yeah. And I love what you said about like, like this um, autonomy, you know, that we, we always, that it gives us choice mm -hmm. and it gives us agency and, you know, when, and this can help in all periods of life, you know, with when trials are happening, tribulations or celebrations, it really, 
it just um, hones in our that sense that we, we, we ultimately have that control of ourselves and how we um, interact mm -hmm. with the world around us. And that's really powerful and empowering. So thank you so much, sweet Svenja. I so appreciate everything you're sharing with us. Where can people um, find you on your social channels and maybe mention your book? Even though it's in German, there's German listeners mm -hmm. who might not have heard about it yet. Yeah, first of all, thanks a lot for having me. Um, so, yeah, my book is called The Yoga Effect. So it's in German, as you said. Um, it's all about what we talked. It's uh, the first chapter is more about the neuroscience basics to understand how the nervous system works, how we activate muscles. Then I go deeper into perception and movements, all about our senses, how we integrate them, how we uh, produce movement and fine tune them, how we learn and um, the topic of embodiment. So the connection about between the brain and the body. Um, and the third chapter is more about adaptability and posture, how we learn and unlearn, how yoga changes the brain actually, and about mindfulness, breath work and meditation. Um, and so this book can be found everywhere in uh, German shops online or offline. Um, you, like for the German listeners, it's best to go to my homepage. Um, it's just Svenja Borchers yoga.com uh, genau. um, and for the English listeners it's best to just go to my Instagram it's Svenja Borchers or also yoga in the brain I have a second page there that really goes more in depth into this topic yes and we'll put all that in the show notes uh, everybody check out Svenja she's brilliant and humble and a beautiful yoga practitioner if I say so myself <laughs> <laughs> and a good dear friend. So thank you again for coming on here. Thank you. And thank you for listening. And as always, I'm pulling for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.